This is a journey into the magical mystery tour. In living color on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour, a journey into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing in this wondrous, crazy world that we live in. Today, we're going to hear an interview I did a couple of days ago with James Doty. James Doty is a neurosurgeon and professor at Stanford University and the director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. He's also the author of Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart, which just came out in paperback. James Doty, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Into the Magic Shop is a wonderful book about the mysteries and magic of the brain and the heart. And I love this whole topic, and I love being able to share it with my listeners. So I'm really delighted to have you on the show. Oh, well, thank you. You're a highly skilled brain surgeon and a professor at Stanford University. Those are major achievements. You've also made millions of dollars and lost it all and given it all away. You've overcome nearly impossible odds to get into medical school after failing to graduate from college and getting into a highly rarefied neurosurgery residency right away after that. Talk about the humble circumstances of your childhood and how you felt about yourself and your place in the world before you met Ruth. Yeah, I had a very difficult and challenging childhood. As I talk about in the book, my father was an alcoholic. 
He had a very difficult time maintaining employment. And my mother had suffered a stroke in her 30s and was paralyzed and had a seizure disorder, was chronically depressed and had attempted suicide multiple times. Uh, neither of my parents had gone to college and we were on public assistance. And in fact, uh, we had been evicted from homes. And uh, you know, in that type of a circumstance, there's chaos, it's dysfunctional, and you just never know what's going to happen next. And as you alluded to, in those types of environments, a child is terrified. You have an immense amount of anxiety all the time. And there's now actually a body of science uh, and it's called adverse childhood experiences, which demonstrate when children go through those types of experiences, it essentially destroys uh, one's ability to achieve their potential or to have any type of success in life. But I was blessed because at the age of 12, when I had this immense anger and hostility and the sense of despair and shame and embarrassment and a feeling of hopelessness that I walked into a magic shop and there was a woman named Ruth who was the owner's mother and she had this radiant smile and presence about her. I described her as an earth mother, which people of a certain age would recognize what that means. And she really embraced me and while she didn't know anything about the magic in the store. It was her son's store and he was running an errand and she was simply sitting there. She knew about people and she took an interest in me. So you say that the brain has great plasticity and it can change and adapt through experience, repetition and intention and that the real magic is in the rewiring of our brains. Now you were talking about how the kind of experience that you went through makes it very difficult for someone to be able to achieve anything and to believe in themselves. What she taught you helped you to not only overcome all those things, but you went on to achieve amazing things. So that speaks to the power of what she taught you. Well, remember, this was in 1968, and this idea of neuroplasticity didn't even exist. The idea of meditation or mindfulness or brain training practices was really unheard of in uh, society in general. And clearly this woman had some practice in Eastern traditions, but over this period of six weeks, she sat with me for an hour to two hours every day and really taught me a set of mental training practices that allowed me to alleviate the anxiety and stress that I had and my response to events. It allowed me to relax and by doing so, allowed me to be present and to attend, which is very critical when you try to learn and achieve. And then the other thing that she taught me, which you mentioned, was you know this idea that we tell ourselves these messages and we have this dialogue that goes in our head, which we think represents us, but actually is a sort of a culmination of things we've taken in. And oftentimes it says we're not worthy, we're not good enough, we don't deserve love, we're not smart enough. And once you believe that dialogue or that that dialogue represents you, it's profoundly limiting. And one of the most profound statements someone made to me once was, you cannot release yourself from prison unless you understand you're in a prison. And that type of negative self-talk is a creation of a prison that many people don't understand. And she made me see that and be aware of that. And then she gave me the ability, which I talk about in the book, to change that dialogue to one of self-affirmation, positivity, and self-affirmation, and which we now today call self-compassion. 
And once I was able to do that, in many ways it took the anger and hostility that I had to a variety of events in my life and maybe just be able to sit with them without having an emotional response because when we have negativity going on in our head, what people don't appreciate is that it has also negative physiologic consequences in relation to our body and is associated with increasing your blood pressure, the release of stress hormones, which on a chronic level are very deleterious to our health. It affects our cardiac function. It affects our immune system in a negative way. And by changing that narrative to positivity, it engages a part of our autonomic nervous system, which is called the parasympathetic nervous system. And this is the part of our nervous system that's very much connected to our heart that allows us to be discerning, thoughtful, more productive, more creative, and sort of just be able to sit and relax and connect with people versus the other part of our autonomic nervous system which is the sympathetic nervous system, which is our flight or fight or fear response. And this is the one that is associated with your response that creates stress and anxiety. And for many people, that's an everyday occurrence because we were really never meant to function in modern society. Our DNA hasn't changed over the last 200,000 years. And this autonomic nervous system is controlled by something called the vagus nerve, which comes from your brain and brainstem and has a very big distribution within our heart, but all of our other organs and has an effect on them. So when we're able to create a set of mental practices that allow the vagus nerve and the heart and the brain to work in sync in our best interests, not only do we function better in interactions with others, but it also has a huge positive effect on our physiology. And that requires the connecting with our heart, opening up to our heart, which Ruth considered to be the most important of those lessons. What does it mean to open one's heart? For people who don't know what that is, how would you describe that? Well, obviously we see in art, literature, humanities, sort of this metaphorical connection between our brain and our heart, but in fact, it's a real connection. And as I mentioned, when I use the term opening your heart, it's the ability to increase the vagus nerve tone, and this is the nerve that goes to your heart. And by doing so, this stimulates your autonomic nervous system, which then gives signals back to your brain, which results, again, as I mentioned, lowering your blood pressure, improving your cardiac function, improving your immunity, boosting it, decreasing the level of stress hormones down to baseline. And when you're in this state, you are much more aligned in terms of connecting with the other because you don't have the fear or anxiety about the other judging you. You don't have trust issues. And it's really our default mode. Remember, as we evolved as a species, initially we started out with the nuclear family and then what we call the hunter-gatherer tribes, which until six to 8,000 years ago is how we lived in groups of 10 to 50. And this ability to, number one, recognize when another is suffering through facial expressions or body habitus or even smell and desiring to alleviate that suffering actually results also in pleasure and reward because for our parents to care for us for 10 to 15 years, which is a requirement of our species, requires an immense amount of resources. 
So when we care for others, when we connect with others, we have evolved such that our physiology works at its best, and we are rewarded through this hormone called oxytocin, or nurturing, caring, or bonding, loving hormone. And so when we're in this state of connecting, we shift over to our parasympathetic nervous system, and we get immense reward, actually, when we actually demonstrate those behaviors to others. So when we care for others, we are rewarding ourselves. When we're kind to ourselves, we're rewarding ourselves. And people who do practice compassion and loving kindness, research has shown that their vagus nerve actually thickens. As do certain parts of the brain change. Even with short periods of meditation, when we look at people also who have meditated for long periods of time, we actually see demonstrable changes in certain parts of their brains and actually increase in metabolism in those areas of the brain that are associated with reward. So mental training or mindfulness practices or as we've created at the center that I run at Stanford, a compassion cultivation practice or loving kindness practice, all of these have this really profound effect on our physiology because what it does is it takes us from this fear response to this sense of calmness and that's really our default place to be. And the techniques that Ruth taught me, which now have been validated by science and which I outline in the book, is really a pathway to understand how your mind works, to decrease your stress, to change this negative dialogue in your head and give you the tools that allow you to connect with others and also to manifest your intention and reach your potential. You talk about the heart as a compass and you write that with our minds we can create what we want, but it's only the intelligence of the heart that can tell us what's actually worth creating. And that's so very true and I can tell you from my own personal experience, as you know from the book, I was 12 when Ruth taught me these lessons, and I believed as a 12-year-old that the most important lesson was that I could manifest my intentions and get everything, but I thought everything that would give me happiness was related to accumulation of power or wealth, which I thought would give me control, and once I had control of everything, I would be happy, and nothing was further from the truth. In fact, I did get quote-unquote, everything. And I lived in a large penthouse with its own private elevator. I was driving a Ferrari. I had a villa in Florence. I was flying in private jets. And by almost any measure, I, quote-unquote, had everything. And I was dating beautiful women. But I would wake up every day more miserable than I had ever been in my entire life because I wasn't getting anything that made me happy. And what I finally realized and what actually it took me losing everything in the dot-com crash where I was effectively bankrupt when I had nothing, I had to sell everything, I had a period of reflection and I had made some obligations to charity and I wanted to live up to them. And the only asset I had left was stock in a company that I had been the CEO of. And that company ended up going public for $1.3 billion and I gave every share of stock I had to charity. And it was that act when I had nothing to give away everything that actually was the best decision I had ever made because it gave me really the manifestation of Bruce's greatest gift, which was this connection to others and realizing that when I am of service, when I care, 
when I act with positive intention, that's when I'm my best self. And it allowed me to create the Center at Stanford, the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, which has demonstrated through neuroscience and the tools of psychology that when you are compassionate, with intention, it has more health benefit than being at your ideal body weight or exercise. It's that profound. By being compassionate, it actually increases your telomere length and increases your longevity. And because of the work that we initiated at Stanford, we're prior to this, compassion looked at as a soft science, which had no relevance. There are now centers all over the world that are also demonstrating if you will, the power of compassion in many domains. And we've developed a compassion cultivation training program and a compassion skills training program that are being utilized in the education domain, the business domain, in healthcare, and are having profound effects to not only allow people to be their best selves, but to deal with this really epidemic of stress and anxiety that is present in modern society. What are the most recent and most profound things you've learned from your research into compassion and kindness and altruism? Well, myself and individuals at other centers are demonstrating that even our gene expression changes when we act with compassionate intention. What many people don't appreciate is, as an example, cardiac disease or peripheral vascular disease or other diseases are associated with the release of inflammatory proteins, ones that cause inflammation. And it's that inflammation that causes negative health effects on a variety of organs. And by engaging in these types of practices, it actually decreases the release of these proteins or the creation of these proteins and also mitigates their effects. And it shows us that positive emotional states, connecting with others, has a huge, huge impact on our health. In fact, there was a study that, that was done on women who volunteered a certain number of hours. And compared to a group who did not do any volunteering, and this is an example, of course, caring for others or being compassionate, those individuals who volunteered had almost a two times increase and longevity compared to the group who did not, with two exceptions. And it was in people who were doing these actions because they wanted a reward or acknowledgement or were hoping to have some other self-serving aspect of that volunteerism. So you cannot fake it till you make it. You benefit when you're actually doing this authentically. Mm. Now I have a friend who's going through a major health crisis right now and she wanted to know what you consider to be the most important part of healing trauma. And then more personally, she wanted to know for someone like her, who's about to make a life altering decision, and you have a foot in both worlds, she trusts and believes in medicine like chemotherapy to save her life, and equally trusts and believes in magic, such as the cosmology and chronic stress, that may have been the cause of her cancer. Sometimes they are at odds when it comes to choosing a treatment path. Do we trust information or intuition or both? And how do we get there to that, well, I think, you know, to get the well, clarity needed to make such a decision when the stakes are so high? That's an excellent question, and it's one which many people have struggled with. And I can only tell you from my own experience, and one of the things I tell my residents 
is that my success as a neurosurgeon, even though it's a highly technological specialty, my successes with patients are as much a aspect of that technology and my abilities as a, a technician, if you will, but just as important demonstrating that I care. And we know from science that when a physician shows empathy, when he touches the patient, when he leans forward, when he appears not rushed, this has a huge, huge calming effect on a patient. And it shifts them from this mode, which of course is not unexpected when a patient goes to see a physician where they're stressed and anxious about what he's going to tell them or their condition, to one of engaging the parasympathetic nervous system where they become relaxed and calm and they're not having the release of these stress hormones which actually interfere with healing and suppress the immune system. And studies have been shown that when you engage in these types of actions, patients heal better. They leave the hospital earlier. Their outcomes are better. And in regard to your patient's feeling of this, uh, how do you overcome this type of trauma and who do you rely on? First of all, the most important gift you can give yourself is understanding the power you have yourself, which is alluded to by this idea of intuition. In regard to techniques, you can look at the techniques I outline in my book, but also others that are associated in the same domain, mindfulness or loving kindness or our compassion cultivation training. And by developing a sense of calmness and decreasing stress and having a positive outlook, we know that this has a huge, huge, huge effect on healing. Additionally, while I certainly would not negate the use of the tools of modern medicine, such as chemotherapy, I certainly would encourage everyone who has a life-threatening illness or simply uh, feel overwhelmed or stressed that they look to some of these practices that uh, many of which have their foundation in Eastern religions in terms of mind training or meditation, but which have now been secularized and evaluated by science and demonstrated to be highly, highly useful that you utilize them. In fact, there's an individual, although his book is not published yet, called Spontaneous is going to be the name of it, Dr. Reidegger at Harvard, who talks about this idea of spontaneous remissions or people who've suddenly had cures of diseases that everyone thought were hopeless. And this goes back to the same idea that we have within ourselves incredible ability to have a positive impact on our health. And in fact, this is the placebo effect where someone believes that a medication would be beneficial to them or an intervention, and therefore it is. And it's understanding this and connecting with this ability within ourselves to heal that we can really, really overcome many, many of the diseases or illnesses that we all have. And this gets back to what I said earlier about how I train my residents and my own belief that's the power of connection. It's the power of positive energy that is one of the components of healing. Mm. As someone who knows about the placebo effect and understands these things, but it's also skeptical about how all of these things will affect me, how do you deal with that situation when you're kind of stuck in between those two places? Well, having reasonable skepticism is a good thing. I can assure you that meditation practices, being kind to yourself, thinking good thoughts, I know of zero evidence that that's a bad thing. 
inane science. Oh, I didn't mean skepticism uh, about that. I just meant skepticism about the procedures, the possible procedures. Well, that's even when you know. Excellent, excellent point. Because frankly, if you look at the history of medicine and actually the reality that we give treatments that actually are not effective and that science has shown oftentimes equivocally effective and they have significant side effects and that is an issue. And what I tell people is that no one has the capacity who isn't in that field to really get a handle on it or very few people do. And what I always tell people is take the advice of others who've interacted with a particular physician, other healthcare workers, other people who've been treated, and don't accept one opinion. Go to others. And I tell my patients that while I feel I'm very competent and many people recommend me to others, that being said, you need to find someone who you feel gives a sense of trust and caring to you. And I think that's the most important thing. And once you feel you have trust and someone cares for you, then hopefully they're going to do the right thing, taking into account your own personal circumstance. Mm. Yeah, great advice. Thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful talking with you. Well, it's been a pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. That was James Doty. He's a neurosurgeon and professor at Stanford University. He's also the director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. And his book is Into the Magic Shop, A Neurosurgeon's Quest to Discover the Mysteries of the Brain and the Secrets of the Heart, just out in paperback. Are you there? Hi, Tony. I'm here. Great. Well, you're coming through clear. Oh, good. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so you heard that interview? I did. I loved it, of course. <laughs> and you read the book last year, right? I did. I read the book last year and will probably read it again. I remember after you read it, you, you, you brought it up, you, you told me about it, and you talked about the interest in actually interviewing him with me, and other things got in, in the way, but somehow or other, this interview just recently dropped into my lap, and I, I was like, wow. <laughs> And it turns out it's because the book was just released in paperback. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm so grateful that you got to interview him and that he was willing and able and such a good interviewee. I loved so much of what he said. It's really wonderful to hear, you know, Western medical doctors and, sci you know, with science background talking about these kind of things. It is. It's really hopeful. 
I always have a little bit of a mixed feeling, you know, coming from a background of Chinese medicine, which is 5,000 years old. Occasionally, I'm shaking my head listening to these men thinking, oh, gosh, this is not new. <laughs> but I, I also, I, sometimes I call it the Oprah effect, meaning, you know, people like Oprah and James Doty and Mark Hyman and Deepak Chopra and all these guys are bringing this information to the mainstream in a way that it would never be otherwise. So, you know, ultimately, I'm really grateful. And I think we need the scientific verification for it all because most people in the West are very, very skeptical about anything that even has a hint of woo-woo-ishness. It's true, and I think also I've been thinking so much lately about how health is so much about relationship and context and how, you know, as much as your body kind of has a sense of the woo-woo, our brains are Western, and, and me included, as much as I'm steeped in the you know, Chinese tradition and these other ways of looking at the universe, I was raised in this culture and this medicine. And so when things make more sense to my brain in that way and there's research behind it, I mean, for instance, I think I mentioned to you this interview that I heard the other night um, of Bessel van der Kolk, and he was talking about all the research around how yoga really changes the brain and the physiology around trauma. And I found myself more likely to go to yoga regularly because I heard that. <laughs> Even though I already knew that going to yoga makes me feel good. Right. It's like we need more confirmation because there's this huge chasm between the way we think about the brain and the heart. And even though these are things that we have within our own being, we we each have brains and we each have hearts, we have been so highly indoctrinated into the value of each in ways that are highly skewed. Yeah, very skewed to the point where we're trusting any information outside of ourselves over our own direct experience. And it's a little bit dangerous because information is susceptible to change. You know, patients are always saying to me, well, there's always something new coming out. What do I trust? And it's a really great question. I mean, I think it's, I really liked what James Doty said at the end of his interview with you about, um, yes, you need to find someone that has high expertise, but just as important, you need to find a doctor who gives you a sense of trust, who gives you reassurance. That's just as important. Um, and again, we know that from our direct experience, right? But we have to have our direct experience validated. So what you were saying there, in effect, and what he was saying is that not, you, have to, you have to find someone who you trust intellectually, who fits your, your intellectual ideas and model of what you need health-wise, but you also have to find someone who you can connect with on, on a heart and physical and intuitive level so that you can relax in your body and allow the healing to go forward. Absolutely. And I know that's sometimes challenging for patients, including myself as a patient, to find someone. I mean, to find someone who's such a brilliant neurosurgeon like him who also has such a big heart, I mean... That's pretty unusual. Yeah. <laughs> Though I, I think it's getting to be less unusual as I meet doctors and talk with them and f 
find their humanity coming forward. And, and, you know, to their credit, sometimes there isn't room for their humanity to come forward. When they have seven minutes with a patient and a lot to get done, it, it's a challenge. It's a challenge of the whole system. Right. There's not much opportunity to really get to know your patient or and to get to know what they really, really need. Because... You mentioned that it's really hard to find doctors who can give you that kind of dimension and range of care, but it's it's equally rare to find patients themselves who are even aware of the of the range of possibility that they could be getting and could be asking for. Yes, very true. And there's so much fear involved in health and especially in dramatic life-threatening health conditions. You know, if somebody has a brain tumor, they're probably not going to shop around for a brain surgeon that also connects with their heart. They're just going to find someone who is reputable and can get it out, and understandably. But imagine your surgeon is someone like James Doty. I I would guess the outcomes are probably much better. (laughs) I would think so. And you talked about the fear that that comes up when you're experiencing a life-threatening health issue that is so critical because one of the things that they're that james doty was talking about and that they're discovering and proving in science is that when we are experiencing fear that actually shuts our heart down and it shuts down the range of our our perception and our ability to be and our, our awareness of possibility it literally narrows our field of of vision and perspective. And there's a woman, um, Barbara Fredrickson, who has done research and studied this, that the actual visual acuity narrows when people are experiencing fear and other negative emotions like anger and when they're experiencing love and relaxation and compassion their visual field actually expands and opens up their range of possibility that they become aware of. So it's amazing, these these factors and these dynamics. Well, and what's kind of a paradox that's interesting about the body and so beautiful about the body is that often, or not often, it, it has developed that ability as a way to save us, you know, and... And again, back to the work of Bessel van der Kolk. He's, I think you're aware, I'm sure you are, but um, for I, your listeners, he's I'm actually a, not. He's a, oh, oh, so he's, a, he's an MD. I think he's a psychiatrist, and he um, has gotten really interested in trauma research and treatment. And really, the take home from his work is that the way out of trauma is how it came in, which is through the body. Um, that, you know, we sort of see some really moderate outcomes of psychotherapy or talk therapy, which talk therapy is a wonderful thing, but for people who have actually had serious trauma in their life, which is most of the world, frankly, (laughs) um, ultimately the true healing of the nervous system and the brain and the heart and the the ability to function in the world and feel safe um, doesn't come from getting it all figured out or talking about it. It comes from the visceral, direct experience of feeling safe and loved and opening our hearts, as James Doty was talking about. Um, However, when you've been through trauma, the system has really learned to keep that core arousal system up 
and not let any of that love in because love was probably in a lot of trauma cases connected with um, fear. So the way out is to find a way to regulate that core arousal system and get the body comfortable again with its own sensations and its own experience because that's the part that got shut down. But it shut down in the first place so that we could be really vigilant and keep ourselves safe in the midst of trauma. So that's a fascinating thing that you just said at the beginning of that, that the way to heal the trauma is actually to go back into the way the trauma entered into the body. So in effect, you're, you're saying that we, we sort of have to unravel. It's sort of like using the metaphor of trauma in, in our experience and in our body being like a knotted string, like a tangled mess of string, and we have to unravel it pretty much the way it was tangled up to begin with. Yeah, that's a beautiful image. That's exactly right. So how would how would we approach that? It's because <laughs> it's not an intellectual Great. process. It's not as you say. We have to do it through our bodies. It's not an intellectual process. So we can talk about how to do it, but obviously we have to actually do it in real time in our experience in a direct, visceral way with awareness in our body, but I'm just wondering, you know, is there a way that we could talk about how we would approach doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think you can talk about how to do it because, I mean, there's so many methods these days for getting in touch with our bodily experience and being comfortable with it. I mean, the oldest, most profound way is probably meditation, and there's a lot of... um misunderstanding about what meditation actually is. You know, I'll have a lot of patients and friends say to me, oh, I can't meditate, it's too hard. <laughs> and I always say, well, that it, it's impossible to meditate correctly because that idea is that, well, you have to sit and you have to calm your mind. And what I've learned is that that's not actually true meditation. Meditation is just simply being with what is. So it's sitting and over time, uncomfortable sensations will come and the body will open up more to them and you don't move away from it. Um, and it's a practice. You're practicing not moving off of that. So it's, in a way, I think a physical way of communicating to your body, we're still safe no matter what is coming up. Um, but I also think that's, that's not the whole enchilada, so to speak. <laughs> I've also learned from my own experience and then from a lot of this work by these guys like Bessel van der Kolk that um, healing is relational, as I said before. And so, sure, if you are an Asian person 5,000 years ago and you can sit in a cave and change your nervous system, that's great. But again, context. Mm -hmm. The context that we're in is that we're more isolated and lonely than we've ever been in the history of the world in the West, you know, evident by the highest rates of addiction and disease and dysfunction, despite having everything available to us. So I think that points to this disconnection. And what I'm getting to is that meditation and, a, and some sort of practice, yoga, breathing, whatever it is on your own, it's fundamental because you have to work with your own body on a daily basis, but it's not enough. We need connection with others. And I think James Doty's story is a beautiful example of that. And, you know, what Ruth taught him was 
absolutely critical to his not only survival, but total thriving in this world and helping other people. But she didn't hand him a book, right? She loved him and believed in him and spent hours and hours and hours with him as he was a developing kid. And that was just as important as learning the practices. So connection and relationship, I think, is also what tells the body, I'm safe, I'm going to be okay. I'm not just me alone with my thoughts trying to deal with all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and even with meditation, which is a slow process, we need a we need a teacher at the beginning, at least, to help guide us in and to make sure that we're we're not deluding ourselves and going off <laughs> and misunderstanding what the process is, which is so easy to do when you when you don't really know anything. And I think that was one of the great values of Ruth's training of James Doty. They spent six weeks together every single day, and in the book, you you get to hear. James's doubts and the issues that he's going through as he's learning, and that's something that happens for all of us, even even the most well-educated and mature of us, when we're learning something new that's totally different, you know, it's a totally new paradigm, doubts and questions arise, and it's very easy to run the other way for a variety of reasons, so it's really important to have someone knowledgeable who can respond to your concerns and questions and help guide you through through that morass, so to speak. Oh, absolutely, and that's the connection piece that, you know, again, we know throughout time that we're these sensory beings, and we need more than information. We need to feed our senses, and we need to feed it with connection to both the universe around us, but also to other humans. I mean, we're such a social species, you know. Mm -hmm. um, we need that just as much as all the information. But the information is important. It's just gotten overemphasized in, I'd say, the last hundred years. Um, and it came about for good reason, right, to counter all the religion and suspicion and all of that that came before, but now we have to kind of swing back in the middle and say, okay, the information on the science is good and important, but again, in the context of humanity. Yeah, we live in a highly patriarchal society, and the effect, the what we get from our mothers, and our mothers are usually the source of our embodied connection, our unconditional heart connection, and Women's place in our society has been devalued for for thousands of years, and it and the role of women is only gradually becoming more accepted and respected in our society. But it's still it's still being dismissed to a large degree in favor of the more intellectual and male dominated approach towards life. Yeah, absolutely. We've gotten confused, and we've been that way for a while. And there's there's a momentum there that uh, it is changing, but it's not going to get resolved overnight. We would say in Chinese medicine, this is a, we would call this an imbalance of yang versus yin. Mm -hmm. Yang being just a description of mechanism in motion or sort of the male side of things. And then yin is like the receptive, um, it's more the material and the stuff side of things. These are just relative descriptions, but... Um, 
you know, what we see in disease is what we also see in our politics and in our ecosystem right now, which is a lack of yin and an excess of yang. And it's not that one is actually better than the other. It's just if you have too much of one and not enough of the other, then imbalance results, which causes disease. So what you're saying is that we really need a balance of the two. And it sounds like to me that they they actually need to work together, that we have to learn how to use them as complementary um, forces, complementary dynamics together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, a great example of this from what James Doty was talking about is that we can also look at Yang is about sympathetic nervous mm. system activity. Yin is about parasympathetic. So all this go and do and adrenaline overriding the receptive and digest and, you know, feel relaxed and happy and laugh. Um, it's, it's breaking down our bodies and it's breaking down our world. But, but, you know, we see this in, again, things like yoga or other bodily practices where it's not that it's all parasympathetic, actually. You know, you do some things that get your nervous system jazzed up and then you bring it back down and you... I think so much of the key to healing is not about being relaxed all the time, actually. It's how, say, like, resilient we are and able to move from one to the other. How quickly we're able to bring our nervous system back down when it comes up. It's not that it never goes up. A dynamic tension, a healthy dynamic tension, which, you know what this reminds me of? This makes me think of Thomas Cowan and his... his um, theory and his approach to the heart and the the, the understanding that um, you know how the, we need to actually have a, an irregular heartbeat. The heart, if the heart has a very mm. smooth pulse, then that's a sign that that the heart's about to die. And what just occurred to me is that we need a kind of dynamic tension there that keeps things moving. It's like the two wings of a bird that keep allow a bird to fly if our heart is beating smoothly it's kind of like it only has one wing and then it's just going to collapse upon itself and that was just an image that arose for me and just in this moment mm, that's beautiful yeah it makes me think about one of my teachers saying that the pulse is should be more of a jazz beat than a metronome uh-huh. <laughs> kind of similar to what tom is saying yeah. is that and and the chinese the Chinese looked at that too. They looked at cosmology and they looked at the way the universe works and said, there's a, a repeatable rhythm to things that you can depend on, but there's aberrations within that and those aren't problematic. Right. We need the variety and we may not know how to define exactly what the variety we need is, but it's something that we we know in an embodied way, in an intuitive sort of way. Oh, you can feel that. You know, I, ha- I just had an experience. I was on a yoga retreat in St. John in the Caribbean, and before I left, had a ton of stress. And the minute I got there, I just felt my body automatically relax without having to think about it. And I was noticing that the sensory experience, having all this um, complexity and diversity of sensory stimulation from the smell of the ocean to the feeling of the humidity on your skin, you know, versus kind of our everyday life in Vermont, which can, for busy working people, 
can often be a little bit of a sensory deprivation in the winter combined with overstimulation. And it made me think about how we need that diversity of sensory input that isn't overstimulation. It's just feeding your system um, and that we are sensory beings. We're given a body for a reason because we need to live through it, not just through our, not just through what we think. So then we have to learn how to listen to our bodies and we have to listen to the voice, which I, which I get the sense that that's what intuition really is, is the voice of, of our embodied understanding, our, our embodied wisdom, our embodied relational knowing in relation to the world around us. Yes, and that is certainly these days the challenge to get in touch with. I mean, I think so much because of the speed of our lives, but also because we're encouraged to trust everything else inside of ourselves other than ourselves. And, and again, it's a balance to trust people who are experts and people who love you, but also what is your actual body telling you? It's so super brilliant. It's always giving us exactly the information we need. It's just the next step into translation is where it gets really confusing. Often. Yeah, yeah. And again, especially for people who have trauma in their background, because you, you, your body has developed a way of disconnecting mm-hmm. from itself as a way to survive that. Mm. So that's another hurdle for a lot of people to get over, I think. Are you familiar with Bruce Lipton? Oh, I am. Yes, I love him. I love the way he talks about the way we are in continual communication with the world around us, that the inside is, is continually communicating with the outside. And even in terms of trauma, it's like trauma is like a boundary that we have created to protect ourselves. But if we stay in communication with the world around us, then we're continually kind of like bumping into and testing those boundaries. And if we continually do that, and if we can bring mindfulness, awareness of the conversation and awareness an embodied awareness of what we're feeling during these conversations that are continually happening within ourselves and and outside of ourselves that's meeting kind of at the skin level the boundary of who our sense of self in relation to the world around us that things naturally unfold and even our traumas can naturally unfold if if we can trust in that process. And that's so hard because one of the natures of trauma is is this stored, embodied sense of fear and distrust and that we can't trust. Mm, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful way of describing the human experience. I, I remember um, having a bit of a visceral experience of this. Years ago, I did a, um, a vision quest with a group of people where we went out and it was in California, um, out on some wide open land and we had a camp the night before, but then we all went out to our own spots and we just had water and a tarp and spent, I think four nights and five days out, um, just being with nature and ourselves and the most profound bodily experience slash realization I had out of that was, oh, I had all this fear coming into this. You know, what about the tarantulas and what about the mountain lions and this and that? And by the end, I felt, oh, I 
I am not separate from nature, of course. This is what I am. This isn't the thing to fear. The thing to fear is all the things that I have built up around me in my daily life back there at home. The things that separate <laughs> us from nature. The things that separate us, exactly. But I had never had that experience because, you know, I've been tamed, right? Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> Spending time out there with the thing that I am was like, oh, this is the thing that I am. And my body could feel that and it could naturally relax instead of just having to sit there trying to make it relax. That really never works. Wow. So relaxation, physical relaxation also allows the relaxation of our sense of boundaries and allows those kind of artificial, intellectually based, perhaps even trauma-based notions of, of boundaries and separation to gradually dissolve in their own time. Mm, right, right. The trust comes the other direction. It's not you trust and then you relax. You relax and then you can feel that the trust is naturally there. And they... And they they go in tandem, like walking one one step after the other, or the, <laughs> the flapping of of two bird wings, or or however you do. They become inseparable. You you walk by by using both one one after the other. One alone isn't sufficient, which is goes back to the the conversation. So it's this continual conversation that we're having with with everything, the individual, mm-hmm. the individual with the whole. Right, right, right. It's just experiencing what it's actually like to be less separate because the separation is the illusion, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a really convincing one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're brought up with really. it and everybody reinforces yeah. it continually. Yes, yes. So it's, it's, almost like, it's almost a miracle that we can even grow out of it. I mean, we're, we're literally flowing yeah. against the current. Yes. Are you familiar with um, Anita Morjani? No. I just thought of her because she had this sort of spontaneous awakening upon a near-death experience, and her story makes me think of a lot. You know, Eckhart Tolle had a similar experience. People who sort of have a sudden awakening to their true nature, and it's hard for them to describe, but my takeaway is always that it's not that they... They realized that they weren't separate. It's that all that stuff we're talking about that makes us think we're separate on a daily basis just suddenly fell away. Mm -hmm. So they could actually experience what was already there. But she she had a metastasized lymphoma, like a stage four, and tumors everywhere, and she was dying. And from what I remember, she was having... She sort of went to the edge, had a near-death experience, and sort of made the decision, okay, I can come back as long as, you know, I don't have to come back into that body. And she came back and had this very quick, spontaneous remission. All the tumors disappeared, and the doctors couldn't believe it. And she's a very, very awake and present person now and wrote a book and, you know, speaks and whatnot. But it made me think about, you know, we're talking from the scientific point of view about the nervous system and whatnot and how to respond to trauma, but there's also this other aspect that waking up to our true nature is kind of the point. You know, it's kind of, I'd like to think what we're here to do. And a lot of us won't do it before we die, and that's okay. 
but the fact that it's a possibility is the exciting part <laughs> of like and the point of all of this healing maybe yeah i i'm totally there with you on that and a couple of things came up i'll see if i can rattle them off very quickly one was in science they've studied people with multiple personalities and how some people when they shift from personality to personality their bodies physiologically change dramatically i mean incredibly dramatically to the effect that certain personalities will have certain physical problems and then when they shift to a different i mean that visible problems and health issues that can be viewed and then when they switch personalities to another personality, those physiological things completely disappear. And this happens in an I, instant. That is fascinating. I have heard that, and that is, fa- that is a fascinating account of how connected, you know, our character is, the character we develop with how our physiology responds. I mean, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it literally blows pretty much all of our assumptions about reality out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> it sure does. You know what else it makes me think about is um, these stories of people who will get a heart transplant oh, and yeah. suddenly they will, you know, be fascinated with the symphony or they'll be really loving Mexican food and it's this really dramatic switch and then they'll find out later, oh, the heart they got was from a person who was a concert violinist or the heart they got was from someone who lived in Mexico. I mean, (laughs) talk about challenging our assumptions about our existence and, you know, the, the importance of our bodies, or I don't know, importance, just the, um, the complexity of this human experience in a body. Mm -hmm. And the different qualities and, and resonances of, of different parts of our beings and bodies And there's so much more to who we are and to what everything is than there's probably time for us to ever find out in our short lifetimes. (laughs) (laughs) It will keep it interesting as long as we're here, though. (laughs) Yeah, speaking of which, this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. I'm speaking with Brooke Moen, who's an acupuncturist up in Burlington. And I just realized that you were a guest on my show here almost exactly a year ago. Oh, my goodness. Time went fast. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? It's amazing. And it took so long to get you back. <laughs> <laughs> but this is wonderful. I'm, well, I'm, I'm loving this conversation so much. Oh, me too. Thanks, Tonio. So you, you also brought up this thing about awakening in our lives and the possibility of awakening and how some people may not even approach that until they die. Talk more about that from your perspective. Sure. I mean, it's funny. I, it's, it's something that's been really fascinating to me ever since I was about 25 and ran into a teacher in California who I think you might have interviewed once, Adi Shanti. I haven't interviewed him, but, I, but he's my favorite current living um, spiritual teacher. I've played several talks of his on my show. Some, you know, I've listened to 
dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of his, and I found a few absolute gems, which I'll share with you, but continue. Oh, yeah, he's just interesting. I mean, I think what's so interesting to me about him is that he's so normal and also a complete awake, clear being, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Um, but ever since I met him and was he was a teacher of mine for many years in California, um, I was fascinated with this idea of awakening, and I also found quickly that it's hard to talk about, and it, you know, I hesitate to bring it up because I don't, I don't want people to feel confused or isolated by the concept, but what he always talked about is that it, it's, a, it's something that we can point to, but we can't ultimately talk about because it's just the embodied experience, but, you know, the way that I understand it is is simply waking up to our true nature, which is available in any moment, and we all have moments of it. You know, it's a moment, basically, where you're not aware of self, where you're just living, breathing. I think a lot of us have it when we're in nature. That's probably the most common experience of it. Or when we're really in our hearts and love. Um, I think people have it in sex. I think that's why one of the reasons we're so obsessed with sex. Um, <laughs> it's just, I think, the the... The forgetting of the little personhood and the experience of just being alive. Um, but what I mean by having it before we die is is the sustained experience of that, the falling away of the personhood. And someone like Adia so clearly has experienced that. And these people like Eckhart Tolle and Anita Morjani, I think it's that, that the little personhood fell away and it didn't come back. And that's me fascinating that that's a possibility in this lifetime yep and as we progress and practice more and reflect on our experience and have these continual dialogues with the world around us and reflect and and feel into our experience of being here in our bodies in relation to the world around us we can actually have more and more and more of those experiences of letting go into the moment, of, of, of literally letting go of that sense of I that creates this illusory sense of separateness from the rest of the world. I know when I make the effort, which these days, I mean, in the last several years, I found to be fairly easy to do to, to connect into the moment where, where that sense of self totally dissolves. And it is totally an embodied experience. It doesn't last long. I mean, the <laughs> thoughts, you know, pop up again pretty quickly. But I find that if I make the effort, I can do it pretty quickly in pretty much any situation. It, it's just maintaining it is just, <laughs> you know, that's a whole nother thing. Well, and don't you find that often it's incredibly mundane? It's not what we think it is. Oh yeah, exactly. That and that reminds me of the, you know you've heard that old Zen um, thing where the student asks the teacher, "What is enlightenment like?" Well, before enlightenment, I chopped wood and carried water, and after enlightenment, I chop wood and carry water. <laughs> yeah, I remember Adi Shanti describing an experience of being in the hospital with kidney stone and how painful it was, but he was just watching it like, wow, wow, that is so painful. (laughs) And I was a a student of Chinese medicine at the time. I was in graduate school, and I remember thinking, I think Shanti gets kidney stones? 
(laughs) (laughs) And, you know, then uh, in 2015, my Taoist teacher, who was a pretty awake guy, got cancer and died a month later. And it was like the ultimate teaching. I, I feel like that was his final teaching, was none of us are exempt, as it turns out. And life as a human is incredibly mundane. Mm -hmm. I just had an experience the other day sitting in my kitchen, just sitting in my kitchen for a moment and looking around and just having a moment of breathing and looking around my kitchen. And it was, it was just a little portal of totally awake this moment, like time just disappeared. And it made me laugh because I thought, oh, that's it. That's all it is right there. Yeah. It's that simple. And it's that easy. I mean, it's it's always it's always available in every single moment. It's available, and every time you fail, you can always return to that moment, no matter how short it might be. You can always return. You can always forgive yourself. You can always, you know, be easy on yourself if you're not perfect, and and just give yourself the gift of a moment. Well, yeah, and that great paradoxical illusion that it's that it's hard, that it's hard to get to, it's hard to achieve when there's nothing actually to achieve. I mean, I remember Adi Ashanti saying, there is no other species other than a human <laughs> who can sit in a room alone and be absolutely miserable. <laughs> uh-huh. yep. You know, for no other reason than we're doing that to ourselves. And to your point, in any moment, we can just not do that. We can just let it go. And that's what it's about. And I, I just quickly want to reference another way of experiencing it. Many people use sex for that, but um, psychedelic drugs can can give some. Some people do get that experience from psychedelic drugs, and I used to do that. I never hallucinated on them, so I didn't have that kind of experience. But I always had that beautiful awakening, that dissolving oh, of yeah, the illusion. I- from that and and every time I came back I would ask for something I could bring back and every time mm. the voice just said just relax mm. beautiful it was that simple <laughs> Ut- utterly simple my dad's teacher used to say the relaxation isn't a thing to do it's what you already are mm-hmm. yeah exactly let it essentially just let it go. Let go of whatever it is you think you have to do, or whatever. Yeah, let go of of whatever nonsense is going on. <laughs> you know, let go of whatever is arising. Just and letting go doesn't mean getting rid of it. It means just allowing it to be as it is, without clinging to it, without pushing it away, without making any trip about it at all. Right. Right. And, you know, whether it's drugs or sex or acupuncture or yoga or meditation, there's all these ways. But I think what you're bringing up is beautiful. That It's also just fundamentally what we are. So we have access to it in any very, very small, simple moment. Exactly. And it is simple. It, and it's freely available to all of us in every moment. And all we have to do is... Relax. Let it go. Just be our, be ourselves. Be in our bodies. And it's not so easy. I mean, it's easy to say that, but in our culture, things are moving really fast, and we're, we're brought up to have all these kind of weird 
ambitions about life. And as James Doty said in the interview, he realized that they were all empty and meaningless and didn't bring him any happiness at all. Yeah, he really had that really beautiful, I think truly Western and American experience of getting all the things that we're supposed to get and then realizing that it didn't work. It was None a big work. Right, it was a big zero. <laughs> <laughs> and that giving away $1.8 million or whatever it was he ended up getting, giving it all away to charity was what really healed him in the long run and and therefore allowed his compassion to flourish and heal other people like never before. Right. It what was, a, what yeah. an extraordinary story. Yeah, it was the doorway that allowed him to step into a new world, into a new paradigm. And I think it's worth mentioning, too, that, you know, we try to have compassion, have compassion, have compassion. There's so much force behind that. Right. The reason he was able to give that money away is because he had developed compassion toward himself already. I think that's really important. And it took him decades to get there. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't develop it right away, even though Ruth, the woman who taught him at age 12, told him that that was the most important thing. He didn't get it until decades later. And that's the case for most of us. We learn various things, yeah. but we have to go through all the challenges of life in order to become receptive to the core of the lesson, the essence of the lesson, the essence of who we are. It, that's why f for some people they don't, they don't awaken, they don't see it until they're on their deathbed when there's absolutely nothing left and no reason to hold on to anything. Yeah, I mean, we could be so lucky to, to get it before then. Like, one of my mentors, Megan Godfrey, she's a fantastic acupuncturist and teacher in Shelburne and she says this <laughs> very controversial thing but that she wishes more people had really dramatic things happen in their life you know like illness and injury and things because it's such it's an opportunity it's an opportunity to wake up and it can be swift and clarifying in a way that you know if nothing bad ever happens to you you just might not get that opportunity it's a radical viewpoint, but it's a pretty powerful approach to, you know, if something happens to you, instead of saying, why me? You say, oh, wow, I get to have this opportunity. Not an easy thing to do, but total game changer. <laughs> yeah, which, which reminds me of, of something that Adyashanti said once. He said that a woman came to him and she said, I'm dying and I don't know who I am and I would like to find out. And he said, for him... He was salivating like a dog because it's so rare to encounter someone who's dying and knows that they're dying and wants to discover who they are. Those two rarely come together in someone's life. And he was like, this is wonderful. That was his approach. This is wonderful. <laughs> and she, yeah. was, she was receptive. She was ready. And he said that she, she became awakened within a, very, within a few weeks during oh, that time period. Beautiful. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's lucky. Because the truth is, we're all dying. It's, death is not an accident. You know, it's, as my teacher, Leo Mann, used to say, the, the, the cause of death is always birth. And also, we're... We, so instead of... Yeah. We, oh, sure, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. We're also dying into each moment and being reborn in each new moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
if we can so, yeah. if we can let it go. Right. And practicing dying, right? It's, yeah. It's, it's not a, actually a problem. It's just a problem if we think all we are is this little self, this body. And I say this with, you know, great compassion and humility. I, I don't know better. I'm scared of death, too. Yep. Me, too. <laughs> but this is, this is what we have to work with, right? Being human. This is what we have to work with every day. Yeah. Well, I guess I better let you go. It's been absolutely wonderful talking with you. Thank you for the opportunity, and I hope we get to do it again soon. I hope we get to um, interview Tom Cowan in the near future. I think that'd be really fun for all of us. I hope so, too. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to doing that and doing more of these conversations with you. So be well. Take really good you care too. of yourself. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. You, too. <laughs> all right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jim, welcome. Uh, yeah, I I could only hear the last 
half hour of your program, but I, I have a question about awakenings. You were talking, I think, um, about a general awakening rather than specific awakenings for whatever job that you're doing. In other words, actors, if they're thinking and alert and, and pay attention to their career, we have little awakenings along the way. You know, we, we get this one, and then a few years later we'll get something else, and it'll make us much better if we're open to that. And singers talk about the same thing, and musicians talk about it, and athletes talk about it. They, they get in the zone. They, they, it's a kind of awakening. Is that something like what you were talking about, or are, or are you, were you guys talking about a, a common awakening that everybody can get somehow? We were actually talking about awakening into the present moment, but what you're talking about is actually related to that, that the more connected we are, more open and receptive we are in the moment, the more available and receptive we are to having those kind of deeper insights or experiences of flow that allow for a higher level of performance or experience. That, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, thank you. Because a friend of mine went to the Circle School of Acting in New York, very prestigious two-year program, and I went to see a, a final performance of, of his work and other people's work, and I said to him that there were a lot of people there in that performance, and, and I couldn't tell any difference from a good high school actor who's you know, senior in high school and just gone through things. And what I see here, but then others of you were really good. I could see that you had learned something. And he said, well, that's true with anything. You can go to school and learn nothing, or you can go to school and learn a lot, depending on your ability to take in the information, whether it's just an openness or willingness, or whether it's because you're smarter than other people, but some people get it and some people don't. And he said in two years of studying acting, yeah, there were people in the class who didn't, didn't really learn anything. Right, and there's an aspect of trauma that prevents people from being open and receptive to taking in information that, in an embodied sense, that they can genuinely learn from. It's very easy to learn intellectual information, but just facts and figures and, and data is pretty much meaningless in terms of the essence of, of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it can it, be fun, but mm-hmm. unless it connects with some deeper, something deeper inside of us, it, it's not going to have any real substance. Yeah. I've read the, the autobiographies of all the great actors, most of them, and, and I learn a lot from reading those autobiographies. But you have to be open to get it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't just, like, <laughs> you can't ignore it. If you're going to read it you, and, and you learn something from it, it's because you're relaxed but alert, but very alert to take in that information. And that occurs if you're really interested in something. Yes. Yeah. And actors are, are an interesting lot because one of the things that they do is they play different roles and the more roles that you play, the more experience of 
diversity and variety of experience, you have the potential of experiencing, depending on how deep mm -hmm. you can allow yourself into the role. So people who are really good actors, who really embody their roles, they have this kind of a miraculous experience of getting to walk in the shoes of many, 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 many different people. And that, I think, is an incredibly valuable experience. Yeah, so it's, it's wonderful and it's very exciting. I am fascinated with that whole realm of experience because I know in part of my quote-unquote spiritual training, we used to do theater. We used to do what we called dichotomies theater, where we literally played both sides of every type of dynamic that occurs in the human experience mm -hmm. in order... It's kind of like a broader, a much broader experience of the way they teach debate in universities where students have to debate both sides. Mm -hmm. mind that when you were doing that study, you weren't learning how to pitch the sound and the words to the back row in a Broadway theater. Right. And so that's the other half, that's the technical half that young actors don't study anymore. That's why you can't understand anything they're saying. <laughs> so yeah. the, you know, the 30s and 40s, that you could always understand everything. Well, thank you for uh, clarifying what you were up to today. Okay. And uh, talk to you soon. Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye. That's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week. Mm -hmm.